Welcome, all you Freddy cats and kittens. My name is Brian. And I'm Willie. And welcome to episode eight of Deathly Afraid. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, episode eight, man. Yeah. I feel like it's been so long since we recorded. All right. <laughs> well, we had to record early last week. And right. It was like recording late this week. So I know. We'll for it. So we're definitely making up for lost time. What? No, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So, since it's been so long, how was your weekend without me? Oh, you know, we got by. (laughs) This wasn't the same without you here. I could tell the kids were like, Mom, are you coming home? (laughs) I talk to my kids every morning before they go to school. And on the day I was coming home, my youngest was singing, Mom's coming home today. Mom's coming home today. (laughs) And because I'm a jerk, I was like, oh, actually, I I changed my flight to next week. I'm not coming home. And our middle son was like, what? Why? (laughs) So they missed me a little. Just a little bit. And you didn't even go see Kay's Hollow while you were there. We drove near Kay's Hollow. But you can't get down there. I mean, I'm sure I could if I was sneaky, but I don't want to break a law. Got to be very sneaky. (laughs) I'm not good at being a criminal. I just like to learn about them. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's why it fascinates me so much. Because I'm like, how do they do? this how did he do that it's still a mystery i had a lot of fun by the way thanks for asking you're really good at asking you did ask if i had a lot of fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) i know you had a lot of fun because you told me about it nobody else knows about it besides my mom and grandma and aunts how was your tea party you guys (laughs) We went to a tea party at the Grand America Hotel, and it was so fancy. I felt so fancy, and I'm not fancy. Well, you are a lady. A lady Whitley Elizabeth Johnson. Yeah. One year, Brian bought me a plot of land in Scotland, so now I am a lady. I don't even know if that's a real thing. It says it's a real thing, and I have it displayed at my work. Because I am a lady. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta prove that you're a lady. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we had a lot of fun. I would recommend anyone who's in Utah, if you have a chance to go to that, you should definitely go. It was, it was an experience, for sure. So, we did a lot of new things that we've never done. And I lived in Utah. So, 
there's this um i want to give this a shout out because it's something that like in our life is kind of a personal special thing to our family but there is this um restaurant and it's called sticky bird yeah sticky bird restaurant whatever and it's in i want to say it's by farmington station okay and it is um all recovering addicts work there and it's part of a program to kind of get them back into the community yeah and i will tell you what that was honestly some of the best service we had they all had smiles on their face they were happy to be there and the food was delicious. So if you live in Utah, go to Sticky Bird. I think it's Sticky Bar- Bird Red Barn. Because the, um, like the, what is that called? Not a community. The program yeah. is Red Barn. And like they have, they're so cool, you guys. They have a whole program. It's like a two, three year program for recovering addicts. And it's um, like. They have the restaurant, they have a moving company, they have a construction company, and it's all to get these young men like back into the workforce, back into a life. So was it just men that work there or men and women? So the program is for men. So, okay. it, which is kind of sad. Like, I'm sure there probably is other programs like this for women, but it's such a cool concept. I like it. So. There's my spiel on that. I have to go there next time we all go down there. It was so good. Like the food was so good. And they even have Dole Whip um, like shake stuff. Nice. Yeah. I didn't try it because I was so full from the food. But the whole time I was there, I was like, I want to go back and get that. <laughs> anyway. We went to a hockey game and I almost got hit in the head by a pup on Friday night. So that was exciting. <laughs> right. That would. Oh my gosh. That would hurt. And they won. So. The one, the Steelheads. Okay, I didn't know who you were going for, or who they were playing against. <laughs> the team won. You know those guys. You know the winning team. They won. Yeah. Um. Do we have anything besides you know the huge? Please go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, rate the show. Follow us. That helps us get more viewers. And or, I did a Brian. It helps us get more <laughs> listeners. You guys. They view our podcast. <laughs> we are not able to be seen. Only heard. <laughs> That's what I've always been told. You should be seen and not heard. Go the opposite. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, all those good things. We would super appreciate it. Super. I don't know why I always say that, but it makes no sense. <laughs> Um, so anyway, you are first. I'll go first. I don't remember who's first. I'm going first. I'm pretty sure it's you because I did the Lizzie Borden last week and I'm pretty sure I, I was first. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't know. We'll go with it. So, one I am doing this week is one that we have both heard of. And last time we were in California, I actually wanted to go visit, but. With our limited amount of time that we were there, didn't have the opportunity to. It is the HMS Queen Mary. I wanted to go there so bad. Right. And we just didn't have time. Or I think it was like a little further away than where we were. So, yeah. and it was a big group of people. So, maybe this next time we can make a special trip there. 
That would be fun. But we also have a big group of people again. We do. But maybe we'll convince them to go see some ghost stuff. I don't know that any of them are into it. But I would love to go. Yeah. I, I would be happy to convince some people. Yeah, I'm sure we could. So, the Queen Mary is moored in Long Beach docks. Uh, she made her maiden voyage in 1936 and stayed in service for 30 years before docking in 1967. She is also the sister ship to the Titanic, I found out. Really? Yeah. Like, is it like they have the same like layout? layouts, yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Right? Yeah. And so, over her time on the ocean... She amassed more than 50 deaths. A young crew member named John Petter Peter Petter was, Peter? I don't know how you pronounce it, it's P-E-D-D-E-R, whatever, Petter? was crushed. Better. <laughs> That's better. That's better. <laughs> so anyway, this young crew member named John Petter was crushed by a door during an emergency drill. Another died after drinking gin that turned out to be cleaning fluid. <laughs> which I don't know how you would get those two confused. I mean, maybe he had some gin before he drank that. and was like, yeah, this that. looks like gin. It looks like what I just drank. <laughs> um, and the rest died of natural causes. But hundreds of others are said to have died on or at the hands of the Queen Mary. She has hands? Yeah. She would just stab people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So in, in 1939, the ship was drafted into military service. Legend says the staff went half crazy too. One rather gruesome rumor is that the galley crew locked the chef in his own oven one night, roasting him alive. What? Yeah. You said they died of natural causes. Well, That's I, not natural. It was very natural. He naturally, <laughs> naturally was natural baked. Fire. What? Yeah. Apparently, so from what I read, apparently they got tired of like how bad his cooking was or something. And just <laughs> they're like, we'll it. cook you. <laughs> yeah. What the heck? Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> so, though there are no records of the chef's demise, there is substantial evidence that the Mary was responsible for deaths of over 300 men. In October of 1942, the famed ship accidentally collided with the HMS Curacao, a much smaller cruiser that was escorting her around the Irish coast. The Curacao was zigzagging in front of the Mary, hoping to throw off any potential missile attacks, when the 82,000-ton ship mistakenly plowed into it, breaking it in half. What the heck? Yeah. So... It's like, oh, I'm protecting you from other people. But how do you accidentally hit it? You know it's there. I don't know. Maybe the like maybe the zigzaggy guy was like gin, gin a gin cleaner. Just to me, like maybe I guess he was just zigzagging and wasn't paying attention. He might have zigged when he was supposed to zag, and that's when he <laughs> wrecked into the shit. Oh, you saying? <laughs> So, some of the crew died instantly, while others drowned or succumbed to hypothermia in the freezing water. Wait, they didn't save them? No, they did not save them. They just kept going? Yep. They were like, oh, whoops, we hit you, drown. Yeah, so, they, a lot of them drowned or succumbed to the hypothermia because of the freezing water, 
So the Mary never stopped to rescue them, as it would have compromised the thousands of soldiers on board, and an estimated 329 men died as a result. What the heck? Yeah, they're like, if we stop to help them, we're a target, and all these men on board could die, where we're only losing this many men instead of all of these men. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's crazy. So, the truth of what happened was sealed until the war ended three years later. Oh, so nobody even knew nobody that they Nobody even did. knew that it happened until... Well, they knew the ship got sunk, but they didn't know that the Queen That Mary they sunk like, their own Bye. ship? Yeah. So it's just like... <laughs> so, by then, the Queen Mary had undergone a 10-month renovation that erased any remnants of military life. Paintings, fine china, and art deco furniture were returned to the cabins and dining rooms. She was ready to dazzle the rich, famous, and powerful once again. But all the expensive decor in the world couldn't bury what had happened during the war. The Queen Mary was a haunted ship. Probably because she murdered people. So it's, I think it's kind of crazy. Like, it started out as, like, a cruise, this, like, fancy cruise ship, like the Titanic, for all these rich people, and then got converted to a, not really a warship, but like a soldier transport where they said, like, where this was supposed to hold, like, so many people, they packed as many soldiers on there as they could to transport them. So they were, it was like, I don't remember what it said. It was like some odd thousand soldiers on there. And, like, they were sleeping on, pretty much sleeping on top of each other when they were being transported. I'm still stuck on the fact that you just left them. Yeah. Didn't tell anybody. And then they got back and they like, Oh, yeah, by the way. <laughs> this happened. So it was a cruise ship before. Yeah. Yeah, so it started out as a cruise ship. And then when the war, the war started, they converted it to the military transport ship. And then after and the then war, they, moved back. they made it back to a cruise ship. I can see why it's haunted, though. Right? So the ship is reportedly haunted by over 100 spirits. Most infamous being the spirit of Stateroom B340, where paranormal activity is so frequent and intense that some members of the crew refuse to go inside. Everyone seems to have their own story about who or what haunts the room. In 1948, a third-class passenger named Walter J. Adamson mysteriously died there. It is, is it his ghost that haunts the place, or was he killed by the ghost? So another theory claims staff locked a man in his third class room after he murdered two women in the 1960s. You lied to me. What? You said the rest of them were natural causes. These women that the guy killed weren't on the boat. Oh. So they he just... killed them off the boat and then they were like, "Yeah, we heard a rumor about you. Right? I'm confused. They were murdered off the boat. Yes. Then he got on the boat. Yes. And then he was in the kitchen. Cleaning the dish. And they heard it, so he came out. But then, if they knew he killed those women, or did they find out after he got on the boat? They found out after he got on the boat. Okay. So anyway. You're like, shut up. (laughs) They lock him in the room. During the night, he began beating on the door, screaming to the guard outside that something was in the room with him. When they opened the door in the morning, they found his bloody, mangled body. He had been ripped apart. By what? They don't know. 
They just found him ripped apart. Like his arms were ripped off? Like his body was ripped to pieces. And his head was gone? Yeah. And his arms were gone? Yeah. And his legs were gone? Yeah. Everything. Just ripped. But I don't... Okay, go ahead. I don't know. What don't you know? I don't know why he's ripped apart. I don't know. That's what they're saying. They think that he was killed by the ghost in that room. Okay. But we don't know. Okay. It's still a mystery. (laughs) When the ship was retired in 1967, three third-class rooms were combined with to create a larger hotel room. Not long after, guests began reporting odd things. One woman said she was woken when the bed covers were ripped off of her in the middle of the night. She then saw a man looming over the end of the bed. Others heard phantom voices and complained that the faucets turned on by themselves. The ship received 80... Ni- uh, 80? The ship received so many negative reports throughout the 1970s. Wait! <laughs> I thought my so was 80. They received 80 negative reports, okay? I'm turning into you. I can't talk. The funny thing is, is you wrote it. Does that not look like an 80? <laughs> You're like, look at my writing. Yes, it does. <laughs> so my okay. 80s and so's look like. Whatever. I'm sorry. Go ahead. All right. I knew I wasn't going to be Starting able to stop over. laughing for anyone to hear you. The ship received so many negative reports throughout the 1970s that B30, or B340 was closed to the public for over 30 years. It was reopened as a haunted attraction in 2018, though the key comes with a fierce warning. Even the current captain is too scared to enter the room. For real? Yeah. So you can actually go stay in that room or just you You can go look at it? stay in that room. For real? But it's like... Is that the room that the guy got ripped apart in? Or like that got combined into the other two rooms? Yeah, so they took... Two adjoining rooms and made that one one giant massive thing. room. Yeah. Okay. That would be kind of cool. No, it would not. Not to get ripped apart, but to go see it. Oh well, yeah, see the room. I would want would not want to stay in that room. <laughs> so other haunted areas include the former first class swimming pool, the boiler room number four, and the doorway where John Petter was tragically crushed during an emergency drill. Petter's ghost is often spotted wearing blue coveralls. Sometimes he'll run behind people, whistling as if warning them. Other times he'll ask guests if they've seen his wrench. When they turn back, he's gone. The sheer amount of ghostly activity aboard the Queen Mary has earned it the title of Most Haunted Ship in the World, and it attracts as many paranormal fanatics as it does history buffs. As you walk up to its massive black hole, you might feel the same rush of excitement that coursed through passengers the day it was launched. On that May morning, the Queen Mary was still innocent and hopeful, but this haunted ship holds as much evil as it does hope now. Marred by war, neither time nor renovation can bury the dark secrets of the RMS Queen Mary. Yeah. (laughs) So... Uh, during my research, I did find a story of a lady that in 2012 went and stayed there four days and three nights for her birthday weekend. Did she stay in that big room? No. 
She, okay. she just stayed in one of the other rooms and chicken. Yeah. <laughs> so I emailed her and she's actually emailed me back some pictures that she took during her stay there that are pretty cool and we'll post them on our that's cool Facebook and Instagram and yeah she was really nice I talked to her briefly through email and she was like yeah you can use my story and if you want I'll send you some pictures of my stay there and that's awesome so, so this is her you're gonna tell me her yeah, story so this okay next part here is her story of her staying on the Queen Mary okay so her name is Nora Graves um November of 2012 is when she did her stay on the Queen Mary. So her story goes, I stayed on the Queen Mary in November 2012 as a birthday present and was there for four days and three nights. I was in room 131. I had a digital camera, and at the time, I couldn't look at the actual photos until I got home and loaded them on my computer. There were orbs everywhere, a common occurrence on this ship, I understand. However, my experiences were anything but common, at least to me. Let me be clear. I didn't go to the Queen Mary to ghost shop. I'm very interested in British royalty and wanted to tour the Windsor Suite and see other places of interest that related to British royal family. I got to accomplish that while I was there. The Queen Mary was hosting an event featuring gowns of the late Princess Diana. Ooh, that would actually be really cool to see. That would be cool. Sorry, go ahead. I got to attend this event as well. On my first night, the TV turned on and off by itself about three times. I just attributed it to faulty batteries, and it didn't happen again during my stay. I have to tell you something. You're going to laugh at it. This TV thing made, reminded me of it. When I came home today, I was yelling out the kids to do the dishes from here. Yeah. And as I did it, the TV, which I've never heard our TV do this before, goes, hmm. I didn't get that. Try again later. And it scared the piss out of me. That's funny. I was like, who's talking to me? Our TV apparently doesn't want to do the dishes. Apparently. Doesn't understand. Sorry, go ahead. Anyway. So, however, I was awakened in the middle of the night by the sounds of a party. Loud voices, laughter, clinking glasses. I looked out the porthole, which overlooked the water, and there were no party boats around. In fact, nothing was near. I looked out in the hallway and could see and hear nothing. When I inquired at the front desk the next day, I was told the room next to mine was empty and had been all weekend. Also that morning, the light in my bathroom burned out, so I reported it to the front desk at the same time they said they would have a maintenance worker repair it. So I went and had breakfast and came back to the room, and the light had been repaired. I was in the room about 30 minutes, getting ready to go on the self-guided tour, when a maintenance man knocked on my door and said he was there to fix the bathroom light. When I told him it had already been repaired, he looked puzzled and showed me his work order. He said it was his first job of the day. Who and how did the light get repaired? So, like, she gets back from breakfast and her light's repaired. And this but then the maintenance, maintenance worker man. comes and is like, hey, I'm here to fix that light. That's... They're both like, uh... <laughs> Wait, you already fixed the light. Right? So on the self-guided tour, I was pretty much alone for much of the time. I got to the steps to the isolation ward and couldn't make myself go down the steps. I felt uneasy and unsafe as if I wasn't alone. I felt 
closed in even though I didn't go down the steps. I continued onto the bridge and around the ship for I really don't know how long, but got turned around and needed to find a restroom. I asked a painter near the back of the ship to assist, and he showed me where a staff stairwell was near the stacks that led to a restroom near the playroom inside. When I got back to the outside of the ship, there was no evidence of a painter or fresh paint anywhere. The painter had overalls and dark hair with a mustache. I did ask a woman who was walking near the lifeboats if she had seen a worker or painter, and she said no. So there's just what this ghost painter dude was like, Yeah, this is where you go for the bathroom. That's crazy. Right? Tell me that wouldn't be so cool though afterwards. But I mean it's nice. It's not like it was yeah. trying to hurt you. That'd be so crazy. Right? Well, this the last two ghosts seem very helpful. They do. <laughs> Fixing light bulbs and telling you where you can go tinkle. And painting the ship. Yeah, and painting the ship. <laughs> All good things. All Although good things. how shitty would it be? To be those ghosts that your afterlife, it's like, I guess I'm painting this ship forever. I guess I'm changing this light bulb every day. <laughs> like, that would not be fun. Right? So, when I went on the guided night ghost tour, nothing out of the ordinary happened in the usual places, such as the swimming pool, vortex, or door 13. The, the swimming pool vortex? Swimming pool. Vortex. Or door 13. Oh, okay. I took several photos, when later loaded showed several orbs. However, when I got into the boiler room, my camera battery went dead. It was a new battery for the tour, so it should have lasted. The tour guide said that happens frequently. When we got out of the boiler room, some common area, the battery worked great and performed perfectly for the rest of the evening. That's weird. Yeah. So apparently, like, like everything, like cell phones and everything, when you go into this boiler room, like, they all die. Yeah. Oh, that's great. But then it's like she didn't even have to charge it. It just came back up. Yeah. That's crazy. Like, right when they got to another common area, it was like, nope, it's back up. That's crazy. So it kind of reminded me of stuff like on the Skinwalker Ranch where their phones would just like do crazy stuff. Yeah. That's nuts. So lastly, it was the propeller room. I was still with the tour group, but got a very bad feeling when looking at this propeller. I felt closed in, breathing seemed more difficult, and I felt unsafe. I had to get out of there quickly and actually had to exit the ship and go outside before the feeling went away. I had a lovely birthday brunch in the main dining room and left quite happy. When I got home and saw my photos, I was amazed. That's so crazy. Right? And so she sent you some of those pictures with the orbs and stuff? Yeah, so she sent me some pictures, and I'll show them to you after we're done recording so we can upload them. But they're pretty cool pictures. Like, one of them's pretty creepy, but the other ones, I mean, you can clearly see the orbs and stuff and kind of get an idea of these rooms that she's talking about she went in, besides the boiler room, of course. Cause right, because everything died. went dead in there. <laughs> That's crazy. That would be so fun to do. So, I mean... I, we, we should stay start, there one we time. We need to start convincing now people to go there when we yeah. go down there. Yeah, we do. Just to visit for the day. I mean, it'd be, even, even it'd be, not... Well, we have like, what, two days that we don't have anything really planned? Yeah. I don't think Long Beach is that far if that's really where it's at. I don't remember where we... I don't know. We'd have to look it up. Yeah. I'm not smart. <laughs> so anyway, that was my story this weekend. And if anybody of our listeners has gone and visited the Queen Mary or 
stay the night on the ship or whatever. I guess you can um, host like events and like weddings and stuff. Oh, on that's the ship. cool. And they do all sorts of stuff. I guess they have like, I think they call them like haunted mazes or something you can go and do there and all sorts of stuff. So that sounds so cool. Right? <laughs> I would have so much fun. It'd be cool. Cool. I liked that one. It was a good one. It was good. I liked it. Good job, Brian. You did good. Thank you. Um, so I guess it's my turn. Yep. I am going to tell you about Bible John. Have you heard about Bible John? I have not heard about Bible John. All right. Well, you're in for a treat. <laughs> good, because I'm hungry. I'll feed you after this. It's okay. <laughs> Okay, so I'm just going to start out with, like, the murders. Jump right into it. Okay. Okay. February 23rd of 1968, the naked body of 25-year-old Patricia Docker was found in the doorway of a lockup garage by a man on his way to work. She was only yards away from her home in Lang Langside Place, Glasgow, Scotland. So this takes place in Scotland. We're going there. We want to go there. Go into the land of Scott. <laughs> Scott's land. That would be fun to go there. Uh, that would be a dream. So one of these days we'll make it over that way. I hope so. So, yeah. Anyway, back to my story. <laughs> so she was only yards away from her home in Langside Place, Glasgow, Scotland. I hope I'm saying the, these words right because there's a lot of them in here. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah, it works. So, there was evidence of extensive blunt force trauma, particularly to the head and face. She had been strangled to death by a strong lig ligature, thought to be like maybe a belt. Her handbag, watch, cl and clothes were missing from the crime scene. Her handbag was actually recovered from River Cart by an underwater search unit. Her watch was recovered in a pool of water near the crime scene, and her clothing was never recovered. When doing door-to-door -door inquiries, one witness recalled hearing a female scream, leave me alone, the previous evening. An ambulance man, which I'm assuming is a paramedic. Oh. Um, we're not from Scott's land. <laughs> An ambulance man who retrieved the body informed investigators that the victim was a nurse that worked at Mernskirk Hospital in nearby Renfresh... Ren... Renfrewshire. Renfrewshire. Renfrewshire? Renfrewshire. Yep. So, um, Patricia was a married mother of one. She was estranged, estranged from her husband. And the evening of the murder, she had told her parents she was going to the majestic ballroom dancing. However, she spent a majority of her night at the Borrowland ballroom. And some think it's because it was um, the over 25s night. That was hosted there every Thursday. When she didn't return home, her parents thought that maybe she had stayed the night with a friend. Police found out several days later that she had left the Majestic and went to the Borrowland. So, like, they didn't even know when they first found her. So, it's several days after they found the body okay. that they realized, okay, she wasn't even at the Majestic. She was at the Borrowland. Yeah. So, that kind of hinders things a little bit off. Right off the top. Um, the autopsy performed by Gilbert Forbes confirmed that the cause of death was strangulation. 
and that her body bore no clear sign evidence of sexual assault. Um, the stage of rigor mortis at the time she was discovered indicated she had likely died shortly after leaving the ballroom. Investigators thought the perpetrator grabbed Patricia before repeatedly punching and kicking her in the face. Dang. He proceeded to rape her before strangling her to death, leaving her naked with only one shoe nearby. I'm assuming he probably just dropped it running away. I don't know. This is the next murder. August 16th, 1969, 31-year-old Jemima McDonald spent the evening at the Barland Ballroom, where she was a regular. Her sister, Margaret O'Brien, took care of her three kids for the night. Jemima was seen by several people with a young, well-dressed, and well-spoken man. He was of slim build between age 25 to 35 and between 6 foot and 6 foot 2. He had short, dark brown hair with fair streaks or highlights, I'm assuming. I don't know. He had a Glaswegian, Glaswegian, Glaswegian accent and would insert Bible quotations into, into their conversations. Jemima was seen leaving the Barland Ballroom with this man in the direction of her home. Her sister became worry, worried when Jemima hadn't returned home. And on August 17th, she began hearing rumors. So like the next day, she began hearing rumors that local kids had been seen leaving derelict tenement building in McKeith Street, saying there was a body there. On Monday morning, she had become so concerned about her sister, she decided to check these rumors out. She walked into the old building where she discovered her sister's body laying face down with her shoes and stockings lying beside her on the ground. She had been extensively beaten. How horrible would that be? Right. And obviously there had been kids going in and out of there. Right. Just oh, hey, there's a body. staring at the body. So the crime scene can't be great. Right. Probably fingerprints and everything everywhere. Right. Well, then, okay. If your kid came home. And I was like, Mom, we seen a dead body. Or, Dad, we seen a dead body. Would you not go check that right. shit out? Where is this dead body at? Right. Maybe we we call need cops. to call the police. And I'm really upset you saw a dead body. Right. Apparently that didn't happen. So, um, the, the autopsy determined that she had been raped. The end primarily around the face. Before she was strangled to death with one of her own stockings. The murder had had happened 30 hours before she was discovered. Dang. So she'd been there for a minute. Unlike Patricia, she was fully clothed, but her undergarments had been torn. Now here we come to the third murder. So on October 31st, 1969, the body of 29-year-old Helen Puddock was discovered behind the tenement in Scottstown, district of Glasgow, by a man walking his dog. She was found inside her inside a drain pipe in the back garden of her East Street flat. So all three of these women are found so close to their houses. Like this is like literally a drain pipe behind her house. Dang. Um, she was stripped partially naked, and like Jemima, she was extensively beaten about the face before being raped and strangled to death with one of her own stockings. The contents of her purse had been scattered close to her body, but the handbag itself was missing. She had grass stains on her feet and shoe that indicated a struggle with her attacker, 
and that she had also tried to scale a nearby railway embankment. She had deep bite marks on her upper thigh. The evening before the murder, Helen and her sister Jean attended the Borrowland Ballroom. So you see the trend. They're all at the Borrowland. Um, they had met two men, both named John. One worked as a slater and lived in Castle Milk. The second was a well-spoken man who didn't provide where he lived or what he did. So not, not, not a lot known about him. After about an hour, all four of them left the Borrowland to head home. The first John that lived in Castle Milk walked to George Square to board a bus while the other three held a taxi together. They headed to Jean's home in Knightswood, about 20 minutes from the venue. Once Jean got out of the cab, but headed towards Helen's home in Scottstown. Jean told detectives that this John had been a teetotal individually. So I didn't know what the heck that meant. Um, I looked it up, and it's basically someone who abstains from alcohol. He repeatedly quoted from the Old Testament stories of Moses the entire taxi ride. He also referred to the Borrowland as an adulterous den of iniquity. He also talked about his disapproval of married women visiting the ballroom. So it's like, why are you going, bro? Um, so some similarities between all three of the murders. All three women were brunettes. All three women were mothers. All of their handbags were taken from the scene. It's a handbag collector, apparently. Right. All three of them were last seen at the Barland Ballroom. All of them were excessively beaten in the face. All were all three were raped. All three were strangled to death. All three of them had been escorted home and murdered just yards from their home. And lastly, which is the weirdest similarity, all three of them were menstruating. Each of their sanitary napkins or tampons were placed near the bodies, and Helen's was even tucked beneath her arm. Later on, you find out, you know, maybe this, like, enraged him that they were on their menstrual cycle. It's kind of like, I don't know. It's weird. It was weird. So, yeah, it leads to the speculation that the women had been murdered for their refusal to engage in intercourse excused by their periods. Huh. When the first two murders took place, the police, even though they were both so similar down to the last place they were seen alive, the police didn't believe they were committed by the same perpetrator. Okay. Um, the murder of Patricia quickly became a cold case due to the lack of witnesses and hard evidence. Investigators didn't discover she had even been to the Borrowland until three days into the investigation. 18 months later, upon the discovery of Jemima, police noted the similarities between the two murders but didn't link them as the same murderer. Police believed the perpetrator had an extensive knowledge of local territory. However, they also thought he may have been a stranger because none of the eyewitness accounts knew the man seen with the victims before they had been murdered. Police released a composite drawing of the man Jemima had last been seen with to the press. It was widely distributed through the newspapers and television throughout Scotland in hope of identifying the suspect. Undercover police offers offers 
Fuckers. <laughs> Undercover police officers performed discreet surveillance at the Barland Ballroom in late October of 1969. Surveillance was terminated after failing to produce a suspect. Detectives were also blamed for a decrease in attendees at the ballroom. So, like, we don't need your help. We need to dance. Right. So... If you remember, the body of Helen was discovered October 31st, 1969. Basically, once the police stopped their surveillance, the next murder took place. So, that's, it's like they were waiting. Right. Not they. Bible John, we don't know who he actually is. <laughs> um. So, Jean, the sister of Helen, described the suspect as being tall, slim, and well-dressed young man with reddish or fair hair, rounded in the back between the ages of 25 to 30 and approximately 5'10". He had given the name of either John Templeton, John Sempleton, or John Emerson. So she couldn't remember the last name. She just knew it was John. And it may have rhymed with one of these. <laughs> Um, she said he was polite, well-spoken, often quoting from the Old Testament. Jean felt her presence in the taxi was an inconvenience to him, though. He explained to the women that he doesn't drink because of being conditioned by a strict parental attitude. He also added, I don't drink at Hogmanay. I pray. Also, I did not know what Hogmanay was. So I looked that up, and it's basically New Year's Eve celebration in Scotland. Okay. Scotland? Scotland. I said Scotland. <laughs> Caught myself. <laughs> New Year's Eve celebration in Scotland. He also said his father believed that dance halls were dens of iniquity and any women who frequented them were adulterous by nature. Jean mentioned that the man had once worked in a laboratory. He was familiar with several drinking premises in the Yorker district of Glasgow. She was able to, to describe facial features such as his overlapping teeth. Um, the bouncers, though, from the ballroom yeah. dismissed her description saying that he was, he was short, he wasn't tall, and well-spoken individual with black hair. So she's saying he's tall, he has red hair. The bouncers are saying, no, he was short and had black hair. But... She also, I think, spent a little more time than just passing by the bouncer. So, yeah. I don't know. Um, the last possible sighting of the suspect was um, both the driver and conductor on a night service bus. They noticed a young man matching the description that Jean had given, boarding the bus at Dumbarton, Roan, and Gray Street. So, Dumbarton, Roan is a street on Gray Street. Yeah. Junction, junction at approximately 2 a.m. on October 31st. They noted he was in um, a particularly disheveled state with mud stains on his jacket and a livid red mark on his cheek just beneath his eye. So if you remember, like, they thought Helen fought for her life. Yeah. So, and then this guy's getting on the bus just looking like a mess. Um, both witnesses also recalled him repeatedly tucking the cuff of one sleeve into his jacket sleeve, which is also kind of important because a man's cuff link was found near the body of Helen Puttick. Okay. Now, he was last seen by the conductor and the driver 
walking toward the ferry to cross the River Clyde to the south side of the city. Um, within hours of the discovery of Helen, a second composite was made using the description given by her sister, Jean. Um, Jean later saw the composite that was created after Jemima's murder, and she believed that it was like an excellent likeness to the man they had shared the taxi with the night her sister was murdered. So she hadn't even seen the original composite from Jemima's murder. Yeah. They made her composite, and she's seen that one. Was like, oh yeah, that looks just like him. Um, Detective Superintendent Joe Beatty asked the public to closely study the composite and come forward if it resembled anyone they might know. Because the suspect's hair was unfashionably short for the time, the composite was actually shown to over 450 hairdressers around Glasgow. Could you? So I used to do hair, and I can't imagine someone coming in and be like, "Do you know this haircut?" You by like, chance know this hair? When I get with it being a different haircut for the time and you know age or whatever, yeah. I get you remembering something like that. But I also don't think I would remember every person whose hair I cut, especially like who knows when he got his last haircut. Yeah. So. Um, they even asked all the dentists around the city to examine their records and determine if they had any male patients with overlapping incisors and a missing tooth in his upper right jaw. Um, nothing came of either of these. So either he doesn't go. I mean, he's missing a tooth. He probably doesn't go to the doctor. <laughs> um, just kidding. People who do it. There's people missing teeth that go to the dentist. I think I said doctor, though. I did say doctor. Um, so in June of 1970, police employed the, the photo fit system in an attempt to produce a better likeness of the suspect. This was the first instant this method, this method of identifying a murder suspect was utilized in Scotland. Um, more than a hundred detectives were assigned to work full time on this case. Dang. Right. I saw that and I was like, holy crap. That is a lot yeah, of a like lot of detectives. Yeah, full time on one case. That's crazy to me. Um, fifty thousand witness statements were taken from door to door inquiries. Ultimately, more than five thousand potential suspects were questioned in the first year alone. Dang. Which also tells me that's why they needed a hundred detectives on this right? case. <laughs> like five thousand suspects. That's insane. That's crazy. Um, Jean Langford was required to attend over 300 identity lineups. Like, obviously, you would want your sister's killer to be found. But I would also be like, seriously, another one, you guys? That's a lot. But anyway, Jean was adamant that none of the individuals were the suspect. So nothing ever happened with any of those 300 lineups. I think after 300, though, you'd be like, I don't recognize anybody anymore. Right. Um, the police were afraid that the suspect would strike again, so they put together a team of 16 detectives that would mingle with dancers at the ballrooms around Glasgow. They often focused on the Barland Thursday and Saturday nights for the over 25 events, where each victim supposedly met her killer. Um, despite all their efforts, the three cases eventually went cold. Police believed the suspect may have died 
died or been jailed for an unrelated offense, possibly incarcerated at a mental hospital, or even that a senior police knew the identity but were unable to prove who had committed the murders. Um, Others speculated that he may have simply moved or only murdered when he was in the area. This prompted police to circulate copies of the composite to the British Army, Navy, and Air Force bases in the UK, Europe, and the Middle East and Far East. No leads were ever brought from this. Dang. But also, it's like, they just sent it to, like, the military people. Yeah. Nobody else, but... Um, so now we're going to talk about suspects that have been part of this over time. So first one is John White in quotation marks because they don't really know his name. He was arrested after arguing with a young woman at the Barland Ballroom. He closely resembled the composite sketch but was released because he didn't have noticeably overlapping teeth. One police sergeant acknowledged he was one of the best suspects that they had. Several years later, after an altercation outside of the Barrowland, the man was arrested and a detective took the man to the hospital. Um, The suspect needed several stitches in his head, but as soon as the handcuffs were taken off, he escaped. Just took off, which is not sketchy at all. No. The man had given a false name to the hospital staff of John White. Former Detective Chief Inspector Les Brown wrote of his suspicions in his autobiography. After this, the man actually came forward and provided DNA sample, which eliminated him as a suspect. I think that's why they didn't actually say his name either, because it wasn't him. Um, the second, there was an, an anonymous man contacted the police claiming his friend was Rival John and they had frequented the Barrowland Ballroom in the 1960s. He claimed that five years earlier, he had read an article in the Evening Times and realized his friend was the perpetrator. The alleged suspect was traced to living in the Netherlands and married to a Dutch woman, and no more was ever heard from the claimant or the suspect. That was just the end of it. Um, The next one is the Hannah Martin Rapist. In the years after the killings, a number of women had came forward saying that they had been sexually assaulted after a night at the Barland. One of these women is Hannah Martin. She claimed that she was raped by Bible John and subsequently gave birth to his child in January of 1970. So in April of 1969, Hannah had gone to the Barland and left with a tall man whom she had sex with. And then after that, she accepted his offer to drive her home. On the ride home, his demeanor actually became very aggressive, and she became pretty scared she was going to be attacked. Uh, She was also drunk and vomited in his car. He then pulled over and made her get out of the car and left her there. So, um, next one is John Irvin McInnes. Sounds right. Um, he was the cousin of one of the original Bible John suspects, um, but he had committed suicide in 1980. So they actually had to exhume his body in 1996 to do a DNA test against the semen that was found on Helen Puddock's stockings. Um, the results were inconclusive and the crown officially cleared him of any involvement in the killings. And it kind of seems weird that like after he was dead, they're like, Maybe it was this guy. Right. 
Right. Let, let's dig him up and find out. So um, my last suspect I'm going to tell you about is Peter Tobin. And he actually is a convicted serial killer and rapist. Um, several kill- criminologists and investigators speculated that the convicted serial killer Peter Tobin may have been Bible John. Peter was convicted of the 2006 murder of a Polish student who had been raped, beaten, and stabbed to death. Peter had moved from Shettleston, Glasgow, to England in August of 1969. Um, so he moved there after marrying his first wife, who he met at the bar and bar- ballroom in 1968. Um one discrepancy between the two was that Bible John would actually display his victims in a public area where Tobin actually buried all of his known victims. Um, there were also some similarities um, between Tobin and the composite of Bible John. However, Bible John was said to have red hair. Yeah. And Tobin never had red hair. It was always dark. Um. All three of Tobin's former wives gave, gave accounts that he would imprison them, beat them, and rape them. He was also driven to extreme violence by the female menstrual cycle, which also is a lot like Bible John, as they suspected that's why he murdered yeah. his victims. Um, Tobin was also known to be a starch Roman Catholic with strong religious views. So, very similar, and I can see why they originally thought, you know, maybe him. Yeah. Um, also, one alias that Tobin used was John Semple. So, you remember um, Gene saying that he gave a name like John Templeton, John Sempleton. So, he actually used an alias of John Semple, which kind of sounds similar. Yeah. yeah. That's really similar to that one. But Tobin was eliminated as a suspect due to him actually relocating to Brighton before the final two murders. Therefore, he couldn't have done it. And but they did also check the DNA against the semen, his DNA against the semen sample, and it was conclusively proven that it was not his. Um, so after those three murders, there were actually no other murders linked to Bible John. The manhunt for him was one of the most extensive in Scottish history. And all three murders remain unsolved. Dang. Yeah, so they never found him. They tried. I mean, they put a lot into this for sure. Yeah. It sucks that they could never find him. And it's kind of crazy because a lot of the suspects that they had was like, oh, dang, that's got to be the guy. And then it was never the guy. But. Especially Although, the last guy with, like, all the similarities and stuff. Right? Like, how many people hate women on their period? But, yeah, like, tons of similarities. And this Peter Tobin was pretty bad guy. Sounds so, like it. Um, yeah. So that was my story of Bible John. The serial killer rapist that was never found. That's crazy that they never found him. Right? Well, and like they, I mean, I get in the 60s, DNA wasn't as big as it is now. But, I mean, you'd think at some point, like, and then the lady that claimed that he raped her and she had his baby, yeah. her 
didn't rape her. She had sex with him and then he got crazy. But that could also be a woman scorned. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. That's my story. You're sticking to it. I'm sticking to it. That was a good one. I liked this episode. It episode. felt like it was pretty interesting. Yeah. I didn't know much about yours. I mean, I've heard the story, but like there was quite a few that I hadn't things that I hadn't heard before. That was crazy. Well, I guess one thing I left out too is I'd seen like during the war, I think Hitler actually put a bounty out on anybody that would sink that ship. Like he would pay him like a ridiculous amount of money. So he put a bounty on the ship. Yeah. Not anyone that would shoot the ship. (laughs) They put a bounty on the ship. Okay. For anyone that would try and sink the ship or whatever. So it must. So that's why they had that other ship kind of zigzag, doing its zigs and its zags. It zagged at the wrong time. That's crazy. I didn't know that either. That's cool. I didn't know it was. Sister ship of the Titanic, too, so that was kind of neat. Yeah, that one's crazy. I think I knew that it was a warship at one point and all that, but that was fun. I liked it. It was a good time. You're a good time. I'll try. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, guys. Well, thank you for coming back again. Yeah, we enjoy it. Yeah, we've we've been having a good old time. Um... Anything you want to say before we go, my love? Uh, keep submitting any stories you want us to talk about. Uh, murder or paranormal. Doesn't have to be ghosts or can be haunted stuff or true crime, alien stuff or true crime or whatever. And just let us know, and we'll talk about it. Heck yeah, we will. Um, yeah. All right, rate review. Love us, please. <laughs> share us with all your friends, family, workers. Non-workers. Non-workers. <laughs> Just yell it at people you crash on the street. Yeah. Like, hey, go listen to these guys. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> Just yelling at people on the street. Listen to this podcast. Oh, all right. Well, thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye-bye.